This podcast is supported by JBS International Incorporated through a grant award from the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, with 0% finance with non-governmental sources. The contents are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement, by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. For more information, please visit hrsa.gov. Welcome to another episode of Rural Roads, the R-Core podcast. I'm your host, Aisha Taylor-Kamara. In today's episode, we talk with Dr. Melinda Campapiano about myths and facts about medication for opioid use disorder. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we are joined by Dr. Melinda Campapiano, Senior Medical Advisor at JBS International, commonly known as Dr. C. Dr. C, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. How are you today? I'm well, no complaints. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about why and how you got involved with this work today? You know, it's funny you ask, because recently I was just thinking about that. And I realized that before I ever went to medical school, I, I was an HIV test counselor in, in the late 80s. And people forget now that when the HIV test came out, people there was a complicated consent process because you were basically being told you had a largely at that point in time, fatal disease. So I got very sensitized to basically people that, that I was working with were, were women mostly in uh, who were doing sex work and people who use drugs, people who injected drugs. And I just saw how how this population wasn't getting the preventive services that they needed that could prevent a deadly illness. And so that sensitized me before I ever went to med school. And then, you know, in my personal life, my sister is in recovery from methamphetamine addiction. And so she was in her active addiction, you know, most of my, you know, medical school training and all that kind of stuff. And there was nothing that I could do to help her. There was no medication. And, and that made it all the more frustrating that there are medications that can help some people and we weren't using them and still aren't really using them effectively. So that's basically the short story of how I ended up, you know, doing this work. Thank you for sharing that with us. So as we know, today we're talking about a best practice of the month article that you wrote just about over a year ago. Um, it's also available on the R Cortier portal. So it talks about whether or not using methadone or buprenorphine is just substituting one drug for another. What would you say prompted that article? You know, I have the good fortune of of getting to meet with grantees at least twice a month in, in office hours. And one of the things that people described running into the most in their community and even among the providers that they were trying to um, engage around providing medication for opioid use disorder in their communities was this conception, this sort of persistent misconception that by providing an opioid to somebody with opioid use disorder, you were just substituting one drug for another. And so after having this conversation multiple times, I kind of just decided to synthesize it and kind of put it, quote unquote, on paper. And so that people could have access to this information who don't necessarily, you know, attend office hours. The, ideally, the, the best practice on this question will help grantees give them some talking points, quick reference to some evidence when, that they can use when they're talking to consortium members, community members, healthcare providers who, who have this conception that we're substituting one drug for another. 
So I personally have not attended any 12-step meetings. However, um, I do have colleagues who have like willingly shared that they have attended and that individuals on MOUD are chastised and sometimes judged for substituting one drug for another, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that general assessment? Well, that's consistent with my experience as well. And, you know, if I if I put myself in the shoes of people who are successful or or actively working on a recovery using the 12-step model, I kind of understand. They get invested in the model that works for them, and it's kind of the model they, they think will work for everybody. And, and that's just part of human nature and, and how we perceive what's, you know, what works. Unfortunately, I don't think judgment and shaming mm-hmm. people is really a, a good element to have on anybody's path to recovery, regardless of what door you walk in through. I so, agree. Yeah. So I'm, I'm I continue to be dismayed that people are not made welcome. But a couple strategies people can use is, is I often recommend that providers who are planning to start offering MOUD in, in their community, especially if it's new to the community, is that they attend some of the open meetings. It has to be an open meeting because you're unless you're going there to for support directly, mm-hmm. you're kind of a visitor. So you have to go to the open meetings yeah. and just get a feel for for what people seem to be thinking and feeling. Maybe start a dialogue with people, get yourself known to people. Kind of build that rapport. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and it shows a little respect for the community because it does work for a lot of people. The other thing, thing is to keep in mind that, uh, you know, a 12-step meeting is made out of the people in the room at that moment. So you can have a very different experience and a different meeting or the same meeting on a different day. So, you know, to to really understand what's going on in the 12-step community in where you are considering offering MOUD, you know, going to a few meetings is a good idea. Finally, if you're having patients who are like, I really need some fellowship, I really need to talk to some people who've made it, you know, and and they're not being made welcome in their mm-hmm. 12-step meetings in their communities, there's, you, you want to point them towards a lot of really good um, online virtual groups where they can get that support, where they're explicitly welcoming people who are using medication as part of their recovery. Thank you. So, Digging a little deeper um, in the article that you wrote, um, you wrote about nicotine replacement as a precedent, which uh, we would say is a really great comparison. Why do you think it's looked at differently? Well, you know, there's a number of reasons. I mean, first, tobacco use is not especially associated with a stigmatized or marginalized social group. It was pretty much a widely accepted drug to use, you know. Mm And it's legal for adults and so on. Doesn't usually cause, you know, social or functional issues. So there's just, it was sort of in a different category for a lot of reasons. It sort of highlights the fact that we do have a separate set of standards for people who use other substances that are probably driven by stigma, maybe even racism. So yeah, so there's a lot of judgment at work here. That, that we were able to think that, oh, well, people who use nicotine, they're, they're somehow they're worthy of help. They're worthy of science providing medications for them. They're worthy of insurance paying for these things. And a lot of, we forget now because it's so normal to think that smoking is bad for your health, but that was a big change that, that went on as, as information came out. A you great know, change. That, yeah. 
And, you know, but it's noticeable that we have a lot of evidence that these other substances are bad for your health and we're not having the same response. We're not saying, okay, how can we help people for the most part? So also in the article, you emphasize treatment outcomes. So treatment with either of these medications produces more than a 75% reduction in overdose at three months and a 59% reduction of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you be willing to talk a little bit more about that? Well, yeah. I mean, that is the the sort of top line reason argument for why, the, why we're not substituting one drug for another is if they were equivalent it, functionally, you would not see this reduction in mortality. when people are treated with the drug. So that, in my mind, is very compelling. You also will see less, for example, less hepatitis C, less HIV, less criminal behavior, more what's called pro-social behavior, people working, being, you know, family, effective members of their families and their communities and so on, that, you know, you wouldn't get that if you were just substituting one drug for another. There's, There's also important differences from the point of view of just the pharmacology of these things. You know, people, and, and I understand that there's a little bit of a, a, a cognitive disconnect when you're saying, oh, this person has an opioid use disorder, but we're going to treat it with an opioid. So I, I get that. But aside from being in the same class of pharmaceutical, yeah, there's not very much similar about the kind of opioids that people use uh, in the unregulated drug market and the medications that we prescribe to treat the condition. Key differences are that the medications that we use to treat the condition are long-acting, so they can be taken once a day. They break the cycle of feeling normal, feeling sick, feeling normal, feeling sick. They also, when they're dosed correctly, they function as blockers. If you have people in the right dose of the medication, if they use an opiate, the, the effect of it, the, 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 the reinforcing benefit effect of that is going to be very much muted if they experience it at all. So that's an important thing. A lot of people know that, you know, buprenorphine is a as a blocker, but methadone is also a blocker at the right dose. So that, that's an important distinction between the, the, how the pharmacology, so length of action and the fact that it's a blocker at the right dose. Very so speaking different. of the drug market, do methadone and buprenorphine improve any unhealthy behaviors associated with addiction? They definitely do. I mentioned a minute ago that they reduce criminal activity because you're not having to support an illicit habit if you have a medical treatment for it. Also, you know, we've criminalized addiction. So just by trying to manage your addiction, you're potentially, you know, committing a crime as, as we've defined it presently. And then it's really transformative. When you get on a medication, people will tell me, I feel normal. I feel like my old self. You know, family members will come and say, you know, I feel like I have my son back. I feel like I have my husband back. And so they they function emotionally, uh, interpersonally, cognitively like themselves again. And that, that benefit is not just for them. It trickles out into their family, into their community where they're parenting again, they're working again. So the benefits are kind of difficult to quantify. Uh, but huge. So today you've given us like a lot of useful information. Uh, what would you say grantees could do or where can they learn more information? 
Well, hopefully the best practice is a good quick reference. Another resource to think about is SAMHSA's TIP 63, which is their kind of guidelines for using MOUD to treat opioid use disorder. It's a big document. So I recommend you look at the executive summary because it really kind of bangs through the evidence that I was just talking about. And it gives you some nice little graphics and some Mm -hmm. good numbers that you can uh, learn and kind of be ready to quote when you run into folks. Nice. And is there anything that you would like Green Seas to know? Any last remarks before we wrap up today? You know, when when we wrap up our office hours, we always like to thank people for the work that they're doing. And so I'll just do that now. Let's thank you for the work that you do. We thank you again for joining us in our discussion with Dr. Melinda Campapiano. Look out for part two. Thank you. Thank you.